0: I think this is a great question for us to reflect on as we start in our passage today, but really reflecting on what we've learned through the book of Acts, because that's the question that it keeps asking us is, are you a disciple? One of the things that we've seen thus far is all of these apostles, which we used to call disciples in the uh, gospels, are just people who are living out what they've seen Jesus do. I mean, if you go and give careful attention to what Peter says when he's addressing the crowd or when he's addressing the Sanhedrin, when you listen to what Stephen says, when you look at what Philip does and even how they talk to people who are marginalized or even going and and, and healing people, the words that they say, the mannerisms, it's things that they've seen Jesus do or that they've heard that he's done. And so really being a disciple means to mimic what you've seen from Jesus. So to be a Christian without being a disciple is impossible because being a Christian means to be a follower of Christ. To be a follower of Christ is to be a disciple. To be a disciple means that I know him and that I'm mimicking him. I'm following him. I am doing what I know he has done. I say things that I know he has said i think one of the intimidating things for all of us is that we feel like you have to know so much and be so much to be qualified as a real disciple i love what the video says which all of us are disciples every single one of us the question is what is it that we're modeling what are we a disciple of the world's standard, the cultural standard, or the standard that Jesus has set for each one of us. What we've seen as we've gone through the book of Acts is that all of these early church leaders were simply being obedient to the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came and told them to do something, they did that in the way that they remember Jesus doing that. Or they say what they remember Jesus saying. And when you get to this passage in the, in the book of Acts, one of the things that you find is that Luke loves the word now. Now, if you just take your eyes and just glance back at the beginning of paragraphs from this point backwards, you'll see now, 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 now. And then you'll look at our passage today, it begins with now. You look past that, you'll see now, now, now. And so this tells us that he is delineating, delineating for us all these different activities that were happening and how they were happening in sequence and even a chronological kind of uh, storytelling that Luke has given to us. And he's telling us this is factual. Now this is what happened. Now that's what happened. And verse 25 from last week is actually a very transitional verse. So I want to go back and pick it up. Remember last week we left off with uh, Philip addressing and having this incredible ministry with the Samaritans. Uh, It ends up that Peter and John come from Jerusalem and and they kind of verify it and give it this official blessing as well that these Samaritans who have been long marginalized have been welcomed into the church. And then they are going back to Jerusalem and it says they preach the gospel in all of the villages through Samaria on their way back to Jerusalem. So look at verse 25. Now when they attest And spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So Philip and the apostles who had come down from Jerusalem, um, and now they are returning to Jerusalem, which sets us up for that next section, which Luke obviously begins with the word "now." That's exactly right. Look at verse twenty-six. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip. Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, I want to show you a map here. It kind of gives you an idea of what's happening. Whenever you read in scripture that they go down from Jerusalem, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to the south, because in that time, they would talk about sometimes direction was more about elevation. And remember that Jerusalem is higher than everything else. And so they always thought of always going up to Jerusalem. Even if you're in the north, you go up to Jerusalem. So going down from Jerusalem doesn't necessarily mean you're going to the south, but in this case, it actually mentions the direction so that we know that that's exactly what Philip would have done. Now, there are two main roads that go through, thoroughfares that go through Israel. One of them is called Via Maris, and one of them is called the King's Highway. More than likely, Philip would have gone kind of southeast until he hit the Via Maris, and then the Via Maris would go along the way. Via Maris means the way of the sea. So that means there's this, basically this trade route that runs right along the Mediterranean coast until you get down a little further towards southern Israel, and then you have like a desert area, it would then go through. Through there until you got into Egypt. So somewhere in the south of that part of Israel is where the Holy Spirit is leading Philip to go. It always it talks about a desert place that he's going to. And the further you go south in Israel, the more desert it becomes. Remember the wilderness that they traversed for a long time before they went into the Holy Land after they came out of Egypt. Of course, that's all desert land, wilderness. Not a lot of things can live and thrive there. That's very close to where Philip would have. Have intersected with this um, Ethiopian eunuch. Let's pick up a verse 27. And he rose and went. Beautiful, isn't it? No questions. Not, uh, hey, you know, can you give me more information? No, nope. obedience. Simple obedience. He rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. Seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. So Luke tells us here that the influence of Philip's mission has grown substantially here. Uh, But notice that it grows by simple obedience. What I mean by that is Philip is about to meet this guy and he's going to share the gospel with this guy. And this guy is going to take the gospel to the continent of Africa. And one of the things we know from church history is that the, the gospel really began to take root faster in Africa than it even did in Europe. And there is is long-standing traditions, and especially in northern Africa, of Christian communities that date way back even close to this time. So we know that that was one of the influences, more than likely, was this uh, Ethiopian eunuch that went back and took the gospel with him. But I want you to think about this from Philip's perspective for a moment. He had just had this incredible ministry with the Samaritans. Uh, I mean, wondrous acts, miracles that were being performed. I want you to notice that there's really no miracle that was mentioned here. Um, He had this incredible ministry that was drawing people probably by the hundreds, maybe even the thousands. Um, People were coming from all over, whole villages were being saved. And now as he works his way back to Jerusalem, every single village they stopped in, there was his incredible works, preaching the gospel, people responding, people getting baptized by the hundreds, maybe thousands. And then he makes his way back to Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit says, hey, I want you to go south to a deserted place. Now, if that was you and I, we might would say something like, Lord, haven't I shown myself to be faithful for more than being in a deserted place? Haven't I shown myself that I would do what it takes? Haven't I earned anything by doing and being obedient and seeing the incredible? You've seen what can happen when I go into a place that has lots of people. Why are you now sending me into a deserted place? And ultimately, he's going to go and see one person. When he's been preaching to hundreds, again, maybe thousands, And now God calls him to one individual. But you know what's amazing? Philip never bats an eye. He just says, yeah, he arose and he went. That is the beautiful place of obedience that you and I need to get to, where we don't question what the Spirit's doing, that we understand that God's ways aren't our ways, that sometimes what looks to be so simple can be very profound, and what looks very profound can really be sometimes simple. You just don't know what God is doing in the background. And so we always have to leave that to God, and we have to live a life that is based in simple obedience. Philip goes from the Samaritans who have ties to the Jewish people to an Ethiopian who seems by all indications of this passage to be a a Gentile who is interested in converting to Judaism because it says that he went to Jerusalem to worship. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't say that he went to Jerusalem and worship. It says he went to Jerusalem to worship. So we don't know if he actually ended up worshiping. We'll get to why in just a minute. So we do see from this perspective that Philip's ministry has grown tremendously in scope. He probably doesn't see it yet, but we do. Why? Because we see the Great Commission unfolding. We see that now the gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and now he's about to have this encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch. Why is that substantial? Because the Romans considered Ethiopia at that time to be the ends of the earth. That was literally the way they would talk about it. It's the ends of the earth. So right here, Philip has had a a blessing of being a part of what's happened in Jerusalem and then to be the forerunner of what happened in Samaria and then to be the forerunner of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We always think of Paul as being the one who takes it to the ends of the earth. But the truth is, Philip was laying the groundwork, laying the foundation for all that was going to happen in the future. There is this growing emphasis throughout the book of Acts on the spirit involvement throughout all these narratives that we've been reading and studying. It's going to continue to grow in the narratives that we see coming up as well. It's all about being obedient to the Spirit. It is the Spirit's work. It's not our work. It is the Spirit's mission. It's not our mission. You see, this here, right here in this passage, this is God's mission. To the Ethiopian, not Philip's. It's God's desire to reach the Ethiopian, not Philip's. Philip is just a bystander. He is one who's being used. He is just a vessel that God has used to accomplish what his will is to reach the Ethiopian. And here are some background points that I think are worth noting. Number one, when we talk about the Ethiopian eunuch here, this is not modern day Ethiopia. This was where, like, if you go to the Old Testament, this is like the land of Cush. It's, it's around the Nile, very close to the Nile, very fertile region in northern Africa, but not where modern-day Ethiopia is. Not too far away from it, but not in the same place. Um, the kings in Ethiopia during this time were considered the sun gods, but the kings had a very ceremonial role. They were not the ones who were in charge. It was the women. Can I get an amen? You of y'all. Yeah. So the queen was the one who had all of the power. And when it talks about here, the queen being Candace, it's not Candace Cameron Bure, because we know she's the queen of Christmas, right? And there's the laughter for the people who watch the Great American channel, whatever it is. But this is actually, Candace here is a title. It's not a person's name. Every single queen of Ethiopia during this time had the title of Candace. So it's talking about a title, not a name of a person. And she's the one who was the one who really held the power in Ethiopia. And specifically to our story, she's the one who held all of the purse strings, if you will. She was the one who decided what money was going to be spent where. And so this guy obviously works for her. The Ethiopian eunuch was considered the minister of finance in that day. Uh, The text even tells us as much. That's what he did. He was in charge of the treasury for the queen Candace. Now, even though he seems to be on this spiritual quest here, because it says that he traveled to Jerusalem, listen to me, not for business. It doesn't say that he was there for business or for trade or for any kind of political reason, and then just so happened to go by the temple. No, it says he went there to worship. So that was the whole purpose of his mission. The whole reason that he traveled to this place was to go and worship. But one of the things that we know is that Luke also tells us that this, guy was a eunuch and if you go to deuteronomy i believe it's chapter 23 verse 1 one thing that you find is the law of moses does not allow eunuchs to come into the temple they're not allowed to come into the worship of god why because there's something wrong with them now if you don't know what a eunuch is it's a male that's been castrated Okay, so he doesn't have his male organs. Why would that happen? Well, a lot of times when countries would overtake other people, they would take some of the wise and strong ones and then castrate them. Why? because historically castrated men no longer were much of a threat to you. Number one, they were not a threat to overtake your concubines or the queen, uh, but also for some reason they were also, it just kind of chilled them out. They were not aggressive anymore. So you're taking the testosterone away for the large part. So many of them became advisors. They were very wise men, and many of them were put in charge of treasuries because traditionally you could trust these kinds of people. And, And over a period of time, it was so much that eunuchs were used to oversee the treasuries that by, you know, a few hundred a thousand years away from the date of this writing of this text it became synonymous, like if you were the treasurer, you were called a eunuch, even if you weren't castrated. So the word eunuch actually became more associated with being a treasurer than it did with the physical condition of a eunuch. But at this time, it was still a physical condition, also we know that he connects it with being a treasurer. Why do we know that? Because he mentions both of them. And the reason he mentions both of them is because there was a physical element and there was a political element as well. And I think Luke wants us to understand the physical element because as this guy would have went to Jerusalem to worship God, he would not have been allowed to. Why? because his physical condition would not have allowed him to come in. Maybe they would have allowed him to go as far as the court of Gentiles, but he would not have been allowed to be a full convert to Judaism because he would never be allowed to go in and actually make a sacrifice in the temple. So as he's leaving this place, now maybe he knew this beforehand and he's still very interested in what's happening there. Maybe he went there hoping to find some answers, hoping to find some acceptance, but then found out that his physical condition would not allow him to go into the temple. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us that information. All he tells us is as this man was leaving from being in Jerusalem on this spiritual journey that he finds himself going away at a very slow pace, reading a passage from the prophet Isaiah. Now, the question we would probably not even ask in this um, text, this narrative, because we just typically read through it without asking really good questions, is why was this guy reading Isaiah? I mean, it seems like he has a scroll. Maybe somebody gave him a Torah. I don't know. But he's specifically reading the book of Isaiah, which is not even in the Torah. It's in the book of the prophets. It's outside of it. Why is he drawn to Isaiah? Well, if you ask that question and you did a little digging, you would find that the book of Isaiah is actually the book that offers this guy the most amount of hope. Let me show you what I mean. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the, what's that word? Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the, who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument, a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices, what? They're not even allowed to do that. Will be accepted where? On my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples do you remember somebody quoting from this passage jesus when he overturned the tables in the temple and he says my house my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves So this guy leaving Jerusalem has turned his eyes towards this book, I believe, because of this passage. And the one connection that he has is, how could this come true? How could it ever be made to a point that I could go into the temple, that I could offer a sacrifice, that I could be a part of the name and family of God? And then if you keep reading, this is where you begin both before and after this, where there's this preaching of this Messiah that's going to come, but it's this suffering servant who has To come and he has to die and give himself as a ransom for many. Verse 29 reminds us again of the Spirit's involvement in all of this. I want to, again, paint a picture for you. This guy has been in Jerusalem. He has gone there to worship. He finds himself leaving, going back to his homeland. He is now at this deserted place, really south Israel, moving into the desert. God, at the same time, sends Philip. Philip, at this certain time, he goes and intersected. Philip has no idea why he's there. He doesn't know who it is that he's been sent there to meet. He's just there. He's just obedient. And all all of a sudden, he finds himself walking along this road and probably passing by him because he's on foot. And remember, they're not going by like, droom, 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 like taking off. They're just moving very slowly, okay? A little bit faster than what you would walk, but not much faster than that. And as this guy is going by, Philip is probably standing on the road, probably praying, probably asking God, why am I, God, why am I here? Uh, what have you called me here for? And then all of a sudden, passing by on his right have been someone reading this passage of Isaiah, probably reading from the Septuagint. The reason I say that is because when Luke tells us what he read, it's a direct quote from the Septuagint. So he's reading it in Greek. Philip is a Greek-speaking Jew. He hears the Septuagint being read, and he's like, wait a minute, I recognize that. He's reading from Isaiah. And then the passage goes on, verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And there's actually a play on words there in the original language in Greek. It's the same exact word that's used in the positive and then in the negative. So it's a play on words that Philip is using there that doesn't translate well into English. And look how he responds, verse 31. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So here's Philip walking along. Here comes this little chariot carrying this, obviously a dignitary, with an entourage. You can think, Philip can't get very close to this because he is a treasurer. He's probably got some really good bodyguards with him. And so they're going along, but he hears Isaiah. And he just probably shouts from a distance. Maybe Philip kind of quickens his pace a little bit. He's like, am I really hearing what I think I hear? So he gets up where he's going fast enough, and and he hears, "That's, that's Isaiah. And so he just shouts out, hey, Do you know what it is that you're reading? Do you understand? Now, first of all, I want to tell you, it was customary in this day and time, whenever you read, you always read out loud. Did you know that? Uh, Some of that even carries on today. If you were to go to the Temple Mount, and you know where the wailing wall is. Um, there's like a little entrance there, entrance way, where they read the Torah and read the scriptures. They always are reading them out loud. They believe that whenever you read these holy texts that they are important and they should be heard, not just spoken in the mind, but they should be vocalized and heard by your ears and that's what kind of sets it in your heart and your mind. So whenever they would read these scriptures, they would read them out loud. So this was customary. As he's going down the road, he's reading this out loud. Philip hears it. He runs alongside. He shouts out, hey, do you understand what it is that you're reading? The guy's response was, how can I? This is so important for us to see because this is how God intended for his message to go forth. He said, how can I unless someone guides me? Philip is obedient to the spirit. And what we find in this passage is he's also reflective of Christ. Here's what I mean. The Spirit is leading Philip to come to this place. He listens. He's paying attention to what's happening around him. As he's paying attention, the Spirit, like... like draws his attention to hearing these familiar words and he hears the scroll from Isaiah being read. And then he goes into the chariot upon the invitation from the Ethiopian eunuch and he begins to explain this scripture. But he doesn't just explain the scripture as it's been explained for thousands of years. He's actually explaining it in a brand new way from his own personal testimony because what they lack is a New Testament. But what Philip begins to tell them is, yeah, this is what this prophet has said, This is how people have always struggled with this passage and understood it. But let me tell you, it's fulfillment. Let me tell you from my own personal experience how I've seen this happening. Where did he get this from? Well, isn't it the same thing that Jesus did with his disciples after his resurrection? It says so many times that he spent 40 days walking with them and teaching them and talking about Old Testament texts and showing them how he was the fulfillment of these texts. So here's the thing I want to present to you. I think this is so applicable to our own lives and understanding, and that is being a Christian is as simple as listening to the Spirit and mimicking Jesus. It's that simple. That's what we see over and over in the book of Acts. It is being sensitive to the Spirit, and when the Spirit calls you to do something, the question you ask yourself is, how did Jesus do this? Well, what do I remember about him interacting with people? What do I remember about him teaching the truth? What do I remember about him dealing with the marginalized? See, the eunuch invites Philip to come onto the chariot. So he goes from just walking there, not knowing his purpose, to hearing the, the Isaiah scroll being read, to now being on there explaining these things to the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, what was it exactly they were reading? Well, the next part of the text tells us, verse 32. Verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Okay, so read any commentary on this specific passage from Isaiah, and what you're going to find is that it's one of the most difficult passages to understand in all the book of Isaiah, sometimes even related to the whole Old Testament. The reason is it's understood in so many different ways. And really the, the debate rages around how to interpret who Isaiah is talking about here. Because some people believe Isaiah is talking about himself. Because Isaiah is suffering because he's the only one standing for the Lord in this day and time. He is suffering as a prophet proclaiming the name of the Lord and the way of the Lord in a day and time when no one wants to listen to that. And there was suffering that he was undergoing because of that. Some people believe that he's talking about Israel. Israel is suffering because of the consequences of her actions. And so there is this incredible weight that she's about to carry. She's about to go into exile. And so there's this suffering that she's going Going to walk through and then some people believe that this was talking about the messiah that there was this future person who was coming and it was pointing towards him that one day the messiah would come and he would suffer and so they call this the suffering servant so there were all these different wise men all these sages who saw this passage from many different ways but you know what philip began to pick out of this he started showing how Jesus was the fulfillment of this. Not just the Messiah, but Jesus himself. And so the passage, Philip probably told this Ethiopian eunuch, it's a depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus. The justice that it says this person is denied, Jesus was denied when the religious leaders falsely accused him. When Pilate found him innocent, but still sentenced him to death. When it speaks towards the end of it about the generation of this man, um, the word generation is in the ESV. Some versions actually use the word descendants, and that's probably a better word because it's not just like the generation that the person lived in. It's talking about the generation that would follow that person. So in other words, connected to it. Descendants seems to be a better word because we think of descendants as being connected to the person. We a lot of times think of generation as the people that we live among, like my generation, generation X. I may not be related to them, but they're still part of my generation. That's not what this word is talking about. It's talking about generations that would follow. So the generations that are directly connected. So descendants is a really good word. And then it talks about a life being cut short. Okay, so the life being cut short Uh, the idea of the generations doesn't mean that Jesus' life was cut short in the sense of he should have lived a lot longer and yet it was cut short. What it means is it's a reference to his disciples that would come because of his life being cut short. So Again, when you take the whole thing, what Philip would have explained to this Ethiopian eunuch is the way you understand this passage is there was one who was going to come. He was going to be falsely accused. He was going to die a criminal's death, but from his Death, Many would come from him who would be his disciples, and they would carry on his mission from generation to generation. And then you know where Philip went? To his own personal testimony. I just came from a place, the Samaritans. These were people who were cut off from God's people. These were people who were not a part of the covenant people of God. Maybe he went into the history, and he said, forever they were marginalized, but God called me to them. I preached the gospel to them of Jesus, uh, crucified, buried, risen, and living again, and many of them believed. We saw miraculous works happen there, and they were baptized, and there was a movement of God among those people, and God welcomed them in. Look how this verse goes, uh, text goes in this next verse, verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? So see, again, he's talking about that age-old debate. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. Or, what do we call that? The gospel. Not only the gospel as he knew it orally, in the sense of the stories that were given to him. Because remember, this is not Philip the Apostle. This is Philip, who is a a Greek-speaking Jew. So he was not necessarily there for all the miracles of Jesus and all the teachings of Jesus. He is what we would call a Hellenized Jew. So he has a Greek background, but a Jewish roots. Um, And so he's sharing stories that were shared with him. But then he's connecting with it his own personal story. And I believe verse 34 and 35 are beautiful pictures of what an evangelistic conversation looked like then and should look like today. A searching soul who offers an honest question and a believer who gives a spirit-led answer. That's what evangelism is. An honest soul asking an honest question and a spirit-led person given a spirit-led answer. The question the man asked is one that if you ever go and take a Bible class, you'd spend a lot of time on that passage, talking about how it had been debated through the years. But I believe that for Philip, he uses this passage in Isaiah as a launching pad to the rest of the story. In other words, the story of Jesus, the story of the gospel. And obviously, Philip had updated the Ethiopian on the events of the last few months and all that had transpired with him and his ministry there in uh, Samaria and probably all that was happening with the church. And I think we see the indication that he did that in these next couple of verses. Look at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some, what is the next word? Okay, remember that. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "'See, here is water!' exclamation point." Okay, have you ever been so excited to see water before? "'See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized?' As far as we know in the text, there's not been any mention of baptism. If you go back to the passage in Isaiah, it doesn't talk about baptism, Where did he get the idea that someone who believes in Jesus is baptized? From Philip's testimony from telling them what happened with the Samaritans, from talking about how all of them were being baptized and they were following after Jesus. And he probably was like, what does baptism even mean? And he said, oh, it's a picture of us identifying with Christ. Just as he died, we die to our old selves. And just as he came forth from the ground, we come up with the water. So as we have died with Christ, so we identify him also with our resurrection and his resurrection. And so this is a beautiful picture of the gospel unfolding. And so all of a sudden he goes, see, here is some.'" water why is he so excited about that go back to the beginning of the passage where are they in a desert there's not water in the desert And then all of a sudden, as they get into this desert area, at the exact time that Philip is sharing his story about all that happened with the Samaritans, again, there's an assumption on my part here, but I'm painting a, a picture of this. As they get to this point, just so happens at this point in the story, he looks, and in a desert place, there is some water. That's why I think you have the exclamation point there. Look, here is some water. But what's the next thing he says? What... Prevents me from being baptized? That's an interesting question. Look at what he says. What prevents me? The reason that's important is because he's just experienced something that prevented him from going into the temple. He knows there's something about his own condition that prevented him from being accepted. Among the people of God, from being acceptable to go into the temple, from being acceptable to offer a sacrifice. And so, at the end of this story, hearing how these Samaritans who were also in this same kind of predicament, but yet they had this kind of bloodline connected to them, but they had been prevented for a long time, but yet they've been accepted and brought in. So, now he asked this question in vulnerability. Think about what he's putting on the line here. He's already been rejected. He's already been set aside. He's already been marginalized. And he asks this question and makes himself vulnerable and it might happen again. He might hear from Philip, well, if you just go and prove yourself, if you go and show yourself loyal, if you leave everything behind and you come follow me, then he wants to know what's the conditions. What prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from becoming a temple because I've been prevented from going in the temple, and you're telling me now I can become a temple of the Holy Spirit? What, what prevents me from this? Look at verse 37. Look at it real quick. Some of y'all are still looking because your Bible don't have verse 37, does it? <laughs> How many of y'all noticed that? No 37 there. Now, if you have the ESV or you have the NIV, 37 is not there. Now, if you have the NASV or if you have a King James Version, you have a verse 37. So I'm going to read it from the NASV. I want you to see the importance of this. Verse 37. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So there is a confession of who Jesus is. Now, the question is, why is 37 not in some of our Bibles? The reason is, it's not in the earliest manuscripts. So as we found the earlier manuscripts, we know Luke did not write this verse. So what's beautiful about that is as Luke tells us to it, he offers zero, nothing that that guy has to do except, hey, let's go down and be baptized. But for some reason, later on in the church, they included this, why? They included this because this became customary to say whenever people were baptized. And they probably put it, there's probably a footnote for a long time. Matter of fact, in your ESV and NIV, it's still there, but it's in a footnote. They'll put it down at the bottom. Usually you have a little letter there. You look down at the bottom and they'll say, Uh, Early manuscripts do not have this passage, but it'll put it there for you. So it means it was added later. And the reason it was added later, I think, is important for us because it tells us that very early on in church history, it became important at baptism to proclaim with your own voice that you believed in Jesus. So it was this, this, this profession of faith is what we call it. So whenever people were baptized early in the church, before they would be baptized, they would ask them a question or they would make a comment or they would tell their testimony, but somewhere in that they would confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, why? Because Paul later on will say that that's an important thing. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this probably taking some of the teachings of the apostles, putting it with this this ministry or this ceremony of baptism and all that it symbolizes, this became an early tradition of the church. And so it was included a little bit later on. But this isn't that foreign from what we do when we baptize somebody, right? Before we baptize them, I always, when I do it, I always ask a question. Do you have the confident assurance that Jesus Christ lives in your heart and that your sins have been forgiven? And then you wait, and that person will say, yes, on your profession of faith, it's my privilege to baptize you as my... Brother, my sister, in the name of the Father, his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. I always say the same thing every time because I want everyone to understand what this is representative of and what this means and why it's important that this person gives this vocal proclamation of why they are there. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us and how we have connected into a relationship with Christ. So I want you to see that because it was very helpful. But let's look how it actually continues without that verse, verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way doing what? What did the prophet Isaiah say was going to happen in the day that the Messiah came for those who are eunuchs? They would find joy. This guy was the first recipient of the promise that Isaiah spoke so many years before. He was the first one who was marginalized, who was outside, who was a eunuch, who could not come into the temple, who had now been brought into the family of God, and he goes back to his people rejoicing. This is a beautiful picture here. I want to humbly emphasize, though, what we see in verse 39. It says that they went down into the water. He baptized him. The word is Baptizo. And it says they both came up out of the water. Why? Because he was immersed. The reason that they both go down into the water is they had to get deep enough to where this guy could be buried under the water, okay? The reason they come up out of it is because they had to walk a good ways into the water to get deep enough to where they could baptize this guy. And the reason he uses the word baptizo, it literally translates to immerse. Now, the reason I say that and I say I want to focus on this humbly is I know there's a lot of different denominations out there that teach a whole lot of modes of baptism, but let me just tell you this. The only mode of baptism that you find in the book of Acts is immersion. That's it. It's the only way they ever practiced it. It's actually the tradition that the Jews had as well with their mikvahs. They actually went into the water and they came back out of the water and they called it being reborn or a rebirth. So the reason I say that is because it's so important that we pay attention to the roots. Now, there are reasons that other denominations have practiced other things, and it goes back to more of church history than it does to being biblical. And I always warn people, hey, you need to do what God has called you to do. If you were baptized as a child, I would ask you to just consider again, maybe you should be baptized again. Why? Not because it brings salvation, but because it comes this milestone for you, just like it was for him. That day he was marked in his mind through that experience of identifying with the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's something he'll never forget the rest of his life. And you're kind of robbed of that if you're baptized as a child. You don't remember that. You don't remember that day. You just know it happened because somebody told you that it did. And to me, this is so significant. It should be something in your memory. It should be something that you decided to be a part of, that you responded to the call of Christ with. And we should do it in the way that the Bible instructs us to do it, which is to go under the water and to come back out of it. Now, I say all of that with a lot of passion, but I want to follow it with baptism doesn't save anybody. Okay. You, you, you can never be baptized and still find yourself rejoicing in heaven. But I will say this. It's important enough that it's the first act of obedience that Christ calls us to after we are saved. Believe and be baptized. Okay? Not that belief and baptism together cause salvation. It's just belief and then follow in the ways of Jesus. And following in the ways of Jesus, the early church directly connected that to following in what we call believer's baptism. Once you believed, you are baptized. Again, I don't want that because, hey, I really hope we get a whole bunch of people because we can return our numbers in to some people. And maybe we get a little trophy or reward for baptizing so many people. I could care less about that. We're not a part of a denomination that we report anything. We're not connected, affiliated with it, directly with any denomination that we report to. Why? So my point of this is to say it's about you. It's about your journey. It's about the significance that it brings to you and solidifying that this journey that you have with Christ has been celebrated, has been... um, it's almost like creating a monument or or a milestone as, as you journey on that you look back to this time where you followed in this, in this picture that came from this public confession before a group of believers that you are a follower of Jesus and that you have committed to the ways of Jesus. I just think it's so powerful. I remember the day I was baptized. I was 17 years old before I became a Christian. And you know what? There was no lapse in it, except for one Sunday, I went down to the front. That's what we did in my church. You know, you had to go down the front and tell everybody. And so then they would line you up for the next time you could come up for baptism. And I, I was like, sign me up for the very next one. I mean, I was on fire with it. And I'll tell you, it wasn't because I thought I was more saved at that p- moment. It was because... I felt like that was this big, important step of obedience for me to solidify this this salvation that I had experienced. And I will tell you, it's been one of the greatest milestones of my spiritual journey that I often look back to, especially when I go through difficult times. Why? Because I look back to a time when I remember, I was like, you know what? I was so committed and believed it so fervently that I was willing to go in front of the church and to be baptized in front, and I made a public commitment that I was a follower of Jesus. And that's been some of the things that has helped me help to sustain my faith through some very difficult times. So again, I want to humbly put that out there. Ultimately, you should not be baptized because you feel like I'm telling you to. You should be baptized because you've gone into your prayer closet, and you've allowed the Lord to search you, and you've fallen under conviction of the Holy Spirit, because that's Ultimately, the bigger picture of what's being taught here, being obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And then what does verse 39 tell us? That Philip was carried away by the Spirit. Almost like Elijah. Don't you have that picture? Just like Elijah was the spokesperson of God to a generation that he was calling to himself, so Philip is almost like this prophet or this voice piece of God, and now God is taking him and moving him to another place. And so these were messengers of the Lord carrying the word of the Lord, and now Philip is called away to another mission field, and guess what? The Ethiopian eunuch is going to another mission field as well. We started this with one missionary, and now we have two going to different mission fields. There are now two missionaries. Look at verse 40. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, this is the last that we hear of Philip's miraculous ministry for a while. Matter of fact, he doesn't show back up again until the end of the book of Acts. 20 years later, we find this mention of him in verse uh, eight of chapter 21. On the next day, we, who is we? Number one, who's writing this book? Luke. Luke is one of the we and Paul is the other, okay? And there's probably an entourage of others that are with him. On the next day, we departed and came to, where? Where? So Philip is still there where the Spirit carried him away. He's been there for 20 years. And we entered the house of Philip. Who is he? Man, he's got a nickname now. Look at that. He's Philip the Evangelist. Wouldn't you love to have a nickname like that? Wouldn't you love to be the person? Like, there's, there's a, you know, Jim the Gospel Sharer. There is, is, is Steve the Evangelist. Uh, whatever it may be, man, w- what a, a big deal it is to be known for being obedient to the call of the Spirit in your life. He is Philip the Evangelist. But not only that, not only does he have a nickname, look, he has a legacy. Who was one of seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So, so he had four unmarried daughters. In other words, they had not connected with any. They had given themselves, the passage seems to indicate they had given themselves in totality to the Lord and the Lord was using them to prophesy and to continue to carry out the ministry of the early church. He has a nickname and he has a legacy and this is a place where Paul and Luke find refuge when they go to Caesarea. And not only that, Don't forget that in just a couple of chapters, we're going to find Peter taking the gospel because the Spirit has called him to go preach to Cornelius. Where is Cornelius? Caesarea. Philip's already been there. Philip's been laying the groundwork. He's already been preaching the gospel. And Peter will come, just like he did in Samaria, he'll follow up Philip And he will give his blessing to what's happening there. And that's when it opens up to all the Gentiles. Wow. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? I want to leave you with one, just one application point today. And I want you to think about this. I want you to reflect on it. And I want it to wash over your soul. I want it to convict you, but also give you passion and freedom at the same time. And that's this. Divine appointments happen with the habit of daily faithfulness. You think, oh man, to be used by God like that in divine appointment. Hey, divine appointments happen when you're in the habit of daily faithfulness. That means daily you're spending time with the Lord. Daily you're spending time in prayer. Daily you're listening to the conversations around you. You're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Remember, all of that was a part of what happens here with Philip. And that divine moment happened because you're looking at a guy who is daily faithful. The more faithful you are in just daily, everyday, mundane things, the more divine appointments you will see happening around you. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for a beautiful word that reminds us of how powerful you are, Holy Spirit. How powerful you are to bring Um, value to our following of Jesus, how valuable you are to the insight that we can have about what's happening around us. Lord, in this one passage, we see racial, cultural, and religious barriers falling away because of the gospel. Lord, we want to see you do that again We want to continue to see the work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the lives of people around us. Lord, we want to understand and see and be a part of more divine appointments. Lord, just so happens that just as Philip was coming down there, the Ethiopian eunuch was coming by, coincidence? I don't think so. And it just so happened as he finished sharing the story and connecting all these stories to Jesus that they happened to be passing by water in a deserted place coincidence? I don't think so. It was all divine appointment. Lord, thank you for bringing meaning to our meaningless lives. Thank you for bringing purpose to where we search and search and can't find it, even though we try to create it. And yet there it was all along, and you intended to give it to us from the very beginning. Lord, help our hearts to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, help us to long to be used for your kingdom's sake And Lord, more than anything, I pray in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, make this passage and this teaching applicable to each heart who is wise enough to hear the words of the Lord. May we have the courage to respond, and may you add a blessing to the teaching of your word. And we ask this in the name that's above every name, Jesus, our Lord. Amen.